and um, you didn't have anything better going on. So thanks a lot for being here. I'm making this a priority. Um, I just want to ask a question since you're all here on a holiday. What comes to mind when you hear the word paradise? Sand. Sand? Oh, what? Cheeseburger. Wow, that was you read my mind somehow. Okay, cheeseburgers. Okay, what else? God's presence. Relaxation. Okay, we're going to get very specific now. Okay. Actually, there was a town in Nova Scotia a few miles from where I grew up called Paradise. Yes. I'm, I'm guessing every, yes. Yeah, I'm guessing every, every state probably has one. Any, what else? Paradise. What's paradise to you? Heaven. What? Silence. Silence? Oh, okay. I get the point. Okay, just hold on. Let me turn my mic off. <laughs> what else? Ocean. What? Eden. Peace. Okay. If uh, I don't know what your we all have it's interesting because we all have different uh, a vision of what paradise is and please don't don't read anything into it I'm, I'm I'm really looking at that sandy beach Caribbean water cold drink in your hand sun in your face breeze in your hair book in your lap kind of vision of paradise. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe that doesn't appeal to you. Uh, maybe you'd rather be sleeping under the stars somewhere next to a spring-fed river with tomorrow's breakfast swimming by and your family asleep and the campfire popping flames. Maybe that's, maybe that's uh, paradise to you. I don't know. I don't know what you're... Now, now you've now you got a different picture of paradise coming along, don't you, okay? And you're like, that's where all the empty... That, the people that used to sit in the empty seats, that's where they are today. They're in their version of paradise. Hope they're having a good time. Hope it rains. Uh, maybe... <laughs> Maybe for you it's Monday morning, you're behind a desk with a ringing phone, a frozen computer, an unsmiling boss, an employee asking for some more time off, papers spilling off over into the floor, department head meeting in exactly four minutes and 27 seconds. Maybe that's your version of paradise, yeah? No, you're looking for something to throw at me right now. For most Americans, the idea of work in paradise are as unrelated as bobsledding in Jamaica, you know? That they, they might as well be antonyms. They, you know, they, might be, they might as well be buzzing the opposite energy of, of an oxymoron like freezer burn or jumbo shrimp or working paradise. You know, in fact, most of, our, uh, most of our culture's perceptions of paradise are, are strikingly marked by the absence of work. We, we, we are led to believe that work is at best either a chore or a way to pay the bills. But it was designed by God. Work isn't just something men and women do, like a kind of mandatory exercise class, but amazingly, God designed work to be a deep participation in the life and work of God himself. And so with it being Labor Day weekend, I thought I'd take a few minutes today to talk a little bit about work. The conventional wisdom is that work is a necessary evil. We grudgingly put our time in so that we can collect at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of 30 years or whatever, and uh, I think we should, uh, we should give some thought to this idea. So here are a couple truths about work. First of all, everyone, look, just look around the room for a second. Just look around at some people. Look at, maybe there's some people you know. You haven't seen them since last week. You can wave at people you don't know. You can look at them funny or whatever. You've never seen them before. And you're like, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, whatever. Give them a, uh, just look around. Everybody, everybody has a God-given skill. Yeah. 
Everyone has a sweet spot, that intersection of what you're good at and what we like to do, where your skill intersects with your passion. You may, you may not uh, do life there, all right? Uh, that, that may not be where you spend your work days, but trust me, everyone has a sweet spot. In addition to your skill and passion, if you're a follower of Christ, you also have a calling. Calling is simply God's personal invitation for us to work on his agenda using the talents that I've been given in ways that are eternally significant. That's all that means. God designed us to do something for him. And if you've ever struggled to get your mind uh, and reality around this concept of calling, I would just offer you that hearing God's call involves putting yourself in a position to hear God's voice. If we haven't done the things necessary to put ourselves in a position to hear God's voice, we're very unlikely to hear God's call. For most of us, when we think of work, we often think of how it seemed to get off to a bad start in the Garden of Eden, in that account in Genesis. Uh, For some of us, it is uh, yet to get any better, you know? And, uh, you know, it's like, it was her fault. No, it was his fault. No, it was the snake's fault. You know, if only Adam and Eve and that darn serpent uh, hadn't messed up, there would be no such thing as work. We'd have no chores. We'd have no assignments. We'd have no honey-do list. We'd have no deadlines. Life would be a perpetual spring break full of cool breezes and sleeping late and void of sweat and all the things that we accompany hard work with, right? But wrong. Not at all. A lot of people think work was introduced by God as a, as a punishment for Adam's sin. In other words, if Adam hadn't sinned, that work wouldn't exist. But is that really true? What difference does this make anyway? C.S. Lewis said, that what we believe directly affects what we do. He said that the person who believes that work is the curse of God and the person who believes that work is a potential blessing of God will walk into their workplace with different strides, will approach their work with fundamentally different attitudes. Sound biblical theology teaches us that work was established by God as good before the fall but it's something that would then take toil and sweat and oftentimes be unfulfilling after the fall. But having said that, work has some significant God-ordained purposes. Let's talk about a couple of them. I think four of them. First one, I'm going to God-ordained purpose is, per, is provision. On the most primary level, work provides the necessities of physical life, food, drink, clothing, shelter. Work is a God-given vehicle for meeting our needs. The Bible, especially the wisdom literature and Paul's epistles, those two groups of the scripture, full of warnings against laziness and teach, they teach us how to live productively. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. And, and then work has a communal purpose in this regard as well. God intends to work through us Ready? To meet the needs of others, especially the poor and the weak. 1 Timothy 5 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So number one is provision. Purpose number two is character development. I love this passage, and I have for years this passage in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, where Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, guidelessness, and to guidelessness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These words aren't meant for just our interactions and experiences in the church. God wants us to use our workplace experience to exercise our skills and our talents and our unique gifts and passions, and ultimately to mature us, to grow us into the person that he's called us to be. And that happens from the inside out. Purpose number three is worship. 
And you're like, wait, do we change the subject? Nope. Work and worship at first sound like an oxymoron because you're like, how? I can't sit at my desk and be singing Chris Tomlin. That doesn't work. Here's what I'm talking about. We, we compartmentalize so much of our lives. We work at the job and we worship at church because church is where we praise God, right? But a quick tour of the scripture and we find a whole list of places where we're called to worship God. If we want to talk about places. There's a, on the mountain, in the desert, in a sanctuary, in the temple, on the battlefields, in bed, in Jerusalem, in Hebron, getting very specific, on the Mount of Olives, in Judah, in Babylon, in a manger in Bethlehem, at feasts. In short, where to worship God wherever God happens to be. So when you can find the place where God isn't there, then I guess you're free from, you don't, are free from that responsibility. But God is to be worshipped wherever we are. Worship can be practiced anywhere because it's not a ceremony, it's not a service, it's not a style of music, it's not a, a portion of a service. Worship is a posture of our hearts. Worship is a spiritual act of the heart. It has no limitations of space. It's, its only requirement is the proper attitude of the heart towards God. Colossians 3, Paul says this. He says, working as unto the Lord. He's not talking about a public display, but he's talking about a genuine search for a relationship that comes from worshiping the Creator in every possible way, in every possible place. It isn't so much where we are or what we're doing as much as it's for whom we're doing it. Chuck Swindoll said, we've become a generation of people who worship our work, who work at our play, and who play at our worship. Just back that up. Great statement. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. I think he hit the nail on the head. Chuck Swindoll is away with words. He should write a book. <laughs> Honor... <laughs> Honoring God through what we do isn't something that comes naturally. We've got to work at worship, and we've got to work at worshiping God in all areas of our lives. I love this call to worship. There's all kinds of them in the, uh, all through the Psalms. I love this call to worship in Psalm 63. Listen, I'm going to read a few verses. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 63. Just meditate on that this week. Just read that every day, a couple times a day. Just take, some, take your time. Read it in all kinds of different environments. I think you'll discover that... Uh, the idea of worshiping God with my work is actually something that I can actually lean into. Purpose number four is service to others. Uh, the work that God intends us to do and the work that God intends to do in us, I should say maybe, always involves a mindset of service to others. In the book of Philippians, Paul was talking to a group of Christians, and here's what he said in Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, and he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So every day we have the opportunity through simple acts motivated by the spirit of service to participate with God in the day-to-day operation of his world. 
the plumber, the preacher, the policeman, the politician, the PE teacher, and any other P words you can come up with all stand on level ground. The way we approach our work somehow makes the world a better place. Um, at the end of the day, um, if it's all about me and it's all about my money and my accomplishment and whatever, my, then we've left something out. Because primarily, a service to humanity uh, is what work is really all about. With ability, we've already established that everybody's gifted with an ability. With ability comes responsibility. Being gifted, as each of you are, creates obligations, which means that you owe the world your best effort in your work. Why drag yourself back to work on Tuesday morning? Why, why go down in with, you, in a, with a defeated attitude in your, in your head down? Because the daily grind of work is a service offering to our God and to the world that he created. Every job, every job, offers followers of Christ a stage to model serving. I know you're thinking that through right now. Yeah, but my job, yeah. The word servant is a rich biblical concept. It paints a picture of working for and in the direction of someone else. There are over a thousand references in the Bible to servant or serving or service. It's a central component of the message of the gospel of Christianity. It's a, it's a quality that God emphasizes and, and elevates as a universal language for all of Jesus' followers. But what is serving at its core? Let's look at this. What does it mean? What does it look like? Here's a, here's a definition I really like. That serving is the art and act of focusing on someone else's interest instead of your own. Hmm, sounds like Philippians 2. And serving like this demands a paradigm shift for us from where we naturally land. It's kind of like prior to 1543, and so just a few of you remember that, but prior to 1543, even the most brilliant minds mistakenly mapped the universe as revolving around what? The Earth, a geocentric model. But a Polish astronomer, do you remember his name? No? Nicholas Kup. Copernicus, thank you, thank you, I knew I'd get one. Nicholas Copernicus, going against every shed, every shred of, of accepted science and tradition and authority, placed the sun, not the earth, placed the sun at the center of the universe. And once this radical idea be, was proven and finally gained acceptance, it reordered our understanding of our solar system and it revolutionized astronomy. So to get our minds around the idea of serving, we need to undergo a radical reordering. We've got to redraw the universe around others, not around ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Most of us get up every day trying to figure out how to save our lives today. Works about me, but a Christ-motivated service reverses that equation. A while back, um, a national magazine ran a cover article with a caption that read, self-centered and proud of it. Um, it's kind of like the t-shirt I keep seeing pop up on Facebook that's a sponsored ad, and I don't know why they're targeting me, but it says, uh, Christian and proud of it. Okay, anyway, just like, I don't understand that one. Self-centered and proud, and proud of it. The cover, uh, I hope you're not wearing one of those today. Sorry, I didn't, I'm just trying, not trying to be offensive. It's just a gift. The... <laughs> So this article, let's get back to my, what I'm talking about. This article, the self-centered and, and proud of it, the cover sketch showed a, a large, over, or ever-expanding balloon head loosely tied to a tiny man's shirt collar. And the story is about the predominant message of our culture that's piped into every channel of our existence. It's what about me, and what about me, and what's in it for me, and what about my deal, and my thing, and how about me, and how am I doing, and what can I gain from this, and what about me? Here's the deal. Your work is either serving or it's self-serving. 
And most people are just trying to blow up their balloons as big as possible. Christ-like service is the opposite of that. It's the art of pumping someone else up, not myself. J.B. Phillips said that Christ regarded the self-loving, self-regarding, self-seeking spirit as a direct opposite of real living. His first two fundamental rules for life were that love should go out first to God and then to other people. So what would our work lives look like if they were restructured on a foundation like that? It, I think one thing's for sure, that our places of work would never be the same and our approach to it would never be the same. And regardless of your occupation, regardless of your title or your authority or lack thereof, whatever, if you work around people, you can model serving. Any and all of us can serve, and here's what we're called to do. So here's what it means. I think it means getting to know people as people, not just human working machines. Ron Swanson called them workplace proximity acquaintances. It means learning their names, their spouses' names, their kids' names. It means getting involved with people, not always keeping a professional distance, whatever that means. It means becoming a good listener, not just a good talker. It means asking more questions and then looking people in the eye and listening to their responses. It means remembering that conversation. It means taking the time to figure out how I can affirm someone else, get someone else promoted, get someone else's deal some recognition, not just my own. Any of us can do these things. It isn't a question of IQ or education or training or job experience or position. Serving doesn't require a resume or a certification on a, or a job interview. You see a need, you meet it. It's that simple. And you're like, yeah, but you don't understand my work environment. Well, here's the deal. Is serving messy? Yep. People are messy. The closer you get to them, the higher your chances of getting dirty, you know? And your service won't always be noticed or appreciated or understood. Sometimes you'll be taken for granted. It'll drain you because service is literally spending yourself. But people hurt, and people have emotions, and people need direction, and people need leadership, and people need someone to listen. And in the process, you can be stretched and you can be enriched. Here's the thing about serving. Serving is one of those things that doesn't show up on a resume, right? It doesn't always register on a performance review. So, I mean, where would anyone be able to detect a servant's heart and a servant's spirit? What kind of resume would any of us have if only virtues that, and entries that we could include would be the accomplishments that others around us say we've helped them attain? and help them achieve. I mean, if your resume, here's a question, if your resume was based on your ability to serve others, how attractive would you be in the workplace? Serving in the workplace is so foreign that uh, we hardly know what it looks like. It's one of those things that nobody can possibly be against because we're sitting here like, yeah, it's a good idea, but I don't know what you're talking about. But because we don't have a clue as to how to implement this, where could you find a case study of someone who has approached business and life that way? Well, it's funny that I should ask that question of myself because God didn't leave us to our imaginations on this one. He rolled up his sleeve and he came to the shop floor and he said, I'll go first. Let me show you how it's done. I, I just watch me now and do what I do. Uh, the message translation says it this way. It says, these are the words of Jesus. It says, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That's what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many, many who are held hostage. It's in Mark 10. There are a couple of scenes from the story of Jesus that showcase what serving is and what serving others looks like. And in scene one, the CEO of the universe washes the dirty feet of those under him. Don't rush by this too quickly. It'd be like Bill Gates 
fixing a clogged toilet just off the lobby of the Microsoft headquarters. You know, it'd be like Warren Buffett shining the shoes of his janitorial staff or whatever. I, d I doubt you'll ever see this in an American corporate boardroom. John 13, verse 3. I'm going to read some verses here. John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you who are clean, though not every one of you, you, who are, you are clean, though not every one of you, because he, he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not every one of you is clean. Verse 12, that's kind of parenthetical. Verse 12, when he finished washing their feet, put on his clothes and returned to his place. I love this. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Here's Jesus. He's entering the last 24 hours of his life on earth. Uh, or the last 24 hours, I should say, before the crucifixion. And what was the single greatest, most important lesson Jesus wanted to emphasize to his followers? A, a quick scan of the Old Testament prophets? Nope. A quick review of how to perform miracles effectively? Nope. A hurried review of the high points of theology? Nope. It was a never-to-be-forgotten object lesson on serving. Why serving? Because Jesus knew that if his, if his followers could learn to serve one another his message and his ministry would be effectively expanded when he was gone. There'd be no book of Acts without serving. There'd be no explosion of growth in the New Testament church without serving. There'd be no New Testament without serving. There'd be no churches without serving. Christ's kingdom was built on the back of serving, focusing on someone else's interests and not my own. Listen, every person needs to be served. There were no clean feet in the days of Jesus. Let me just say that again. There were no clean feet. Everyone who was physically able walked the dirty streets and trails in these hardly sandaled feet, okay? These roads were covered with trash and animal waste and raw sewage. It was for good reason, reason that people of the ancient world, they, they regarded the feet as the most ceremonially unclean part of the body. And washing someone else's feet was the, the, just kind of the widest application that this concept of serving could ever be given and right before this, the, the disciples had been arguing. They'd been preoccupied and, and having this discussion about who was going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is now asking them to reorient their, their point of reference outward towards others, that everyone, everyone gets dirty and everyone needs a bath. Life is the same way. Everyone has needs. And to meet them, the disciples have to be willing to get a little dirty and to put aside their desire to be great in the kingdom of God. Everyone needs to be served. And service is an action, not just an idea. 
Jesus didn't, I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't tell them about foot washing. He didn't pull out a PowerPoint presentation and pass out notes for effective foot washing. He didn't hold a clinic on, with, with all the, the details and ins and outs. What did he do? He knelt down, he grabbed the stinky, dirty feet of his followers, and he washed them. Knowing about serving isn't the same as doing it. It's interesting to me that Jesus then had a say to his followers in the story, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Go do this now. Go do it yourselves. The great reformer Martin Luther said that the life and ministry of Jesus invites us all to join the army of serving others. It requires a focusing of life around others. It's the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. Jesus was a servant. I need to be a servant. We need to be servants. But what about an attitude of service? What's a, what would that look like in my shoes, in your shoes? Well, the second scene takes us to the next generation of, of Christ followers who were thinking about the implications of Jesus' example as a servant for all of us. And it's in Philippians 2, and Paul explains the, the characteristics of, of the master to a group of new believers in Philippians 2. And I read three verses from that a couple minutes ago. Let me give you the whole thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's a reason, reason I'm repeating these verses. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Be ready. Be ready for your act of service to be unnoticed, misunderstood, or even rejected. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to us. We go the second mile and no one says thanks. And as a matter of fact, many times no one ever even sees us go the first mile, much less the second. Serving others, get this, serving others means that I have to be satisfied to live with the rewards that only God hands out. Jesus told us a story of a traveler who was stranded in need of help. And and it's weird that only Luke captures the story that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. It's the story of a traveler uh, simply pounding the dust, you know, in that first century from one town to the next, a commonplace routine in the days of the New Testament. And this particular path is the only connector between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's 17 miles of twisting and, and turning dirt path through high desert, and it had a bad reputation for bandits. And people uh, usually only traveled in groups on this particular stretch of road to ensure protection from these robbers and gangs or whatever, but you, you couldn't always try to find a, a, a party to travel with when you needed it, and so sometimes you simply had to risk the trip alone. Such was the case for this man whose story Jesus told. So while he's making his way on this road, he's attacked, he's robbed, he's left for dead, and you probably know the story, and eventually along came the rest of the cast here. Three would-be helpers. Any of the three could have stopped and helped, but only one took the time and effort to offer help. All three walked by need. Only one chose to take the exit ramp to serving. Ironically, the two who kept going were highly religious clerics. And even more surprising is the one who went out of his way to give the aid was a Samaritan, a group that the Jesus audience would have had least expected uh, to help. So Jesus, I love it when he uses irony, uh, and he always uses it for a purpose. 
Faith isn't belief, it's about action. Service isn't about an idea, it's about doing something. Here's the story as Jesus told it, Luke 10, verse 30. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law who had posed this question says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. He's challenging his listeners. He's challenging each of us the way that we treat people. He wanted his followers to realize that the scope of serving others, it's much broader than our favorite two or three friends. Every day we're faced with this question that had been posed to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Who exactly qualifies as my neighbor? And the implied question is, do I have to help them? And who exactly do I need to help? And the answer in Jesus' story is unmistakable. Uh, it's, it's un- and you know what? It's undeniable today. My neighbor is anyone who crosses my path and needs help that I can provide. That's my neighbor. And Jesus calls us to be everyday Samaritans. I want to use this term for the next few minutes as we wrap this up. There are three elements to being an everyday Samaritan. Okay? The first one is seeing like an everyday Samaritan. In this story, all three men were confronted with the broken, beat-up man laying on the side of the road, but they didn't all see the same thing. The first two were religious hypocrites, and you know people like that, who only saw a ceremonially unclean man. They had a blind spot to need that was created by their own self-styled religion. The Samaritan saw a fellow human in trouble. He saw an opportunity to serve. You know, we can have blind spots here too when it comes to being an everyday Samaritan. Every day we pass by people with needs, people who we could serve, and it's easy to have eyes and yet not see. So this power of observation has to be learned. It isn't something that just comes naturally. In fact, you may have to learn to see with a new set of eyes. Think about your workplace right now. In your mind right now, look around your workplace. I mean, are you seeing what's really there? Are you seeing what's, who's really there? Do you see the single mom with the bloodshot eyes from the long hours struggling to make it for her kids? Do you see the guy whose marriage is probably not going to make it? Do you see your boss and your supervisor who you can't stand? Do you also see his teenager who causes him to lie awake at night? The ability to see people around us who are in need is the first step towards practicing everyday serving. Three different men walked by this beat-up traveler, and they all saw him lying there, but what did each of them really see? I want to talk for a minute about some blind spots. Why do we often miss the needs that are staring us in the face? You ever had that happen? You're like, oh, I didn't realize. Oh, I wish I'd been aware of that. I wish I had seen that. I wish I had no. Why is it that we often miss the needs that are staring us in the face? What keeps us from having a clear picture of those in our path who are in need of serving? A couple things. First of all, we think we're too busy. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm an important person. I have a lot of stuff going on. Um, just check my Facebook. I got a lot of notifications. I'm a busy person. Before, uh, you know what? 
everyone I know is busy. And everyone you know is busy too. Modern conveniences that in the post-World War II boom were supposed to make our lives easier, we know have made our lives much more complex and hurried and shallow. And layer upon layer of activities mean that we don't even eat meals together as a family. Cell phones and smartphones, um, I mean, I love them and I hate them, but that we, can't even, we can't have any uninterrupted private time anymore. Um, I mean, is it too much to leave your phone in the car when you go to a restaurant or a coffee shop? Is that too much? Who's that important? Anyway, you can't. It's okay to be inaccessible for 30 minutes. Perfectly fine. Do you know, there's something, I just, this, get, I'm going to get really, really practical, okay? Because it's something I just recently discovered, just, just recently. Did you know that if you don't check your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email today, it will still be there tomorrow? <laughs> Who knew? It's life-changing. Did not know that. I don't know, the information overload has become like non-stop information overload. And it follows you everywhere you go, even in a small town, Ellsworth, Maine, with our insider change-resistant way of life. You know, sometimes we let our pace run out of control. And it's hard to see the living, breathing, thinking, feeling human beings created in God's image, doing life all around us. We have to be really intentional about not letting the hurry and our out-of-control pace cause us to walk blindly past the injured travelers on our path. We need to retrain our eyes to see the lives that, are walking, that we are walking right by. And if we're that busy, we're too busy. And that needs to change. Time to order the, reorder the priorities. Second blind spot is that I am nearsighted and consumed with me and my world. Again, quote Martin Luther. He says, it's the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. And until I shift my focus to see the needs in the interest of others ahead of my own interest and put them there, serving, will be, it's just going to be absent from my life. So element number one is seeing like an everyday Samaritan. Number two is feeling like an everyday Samaritan. You're like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> Here's what I mean. Three guys walked along the same path and encountered the same scene. A priest, a Levite, and a, I know it sounds like a really terrible joke, but a priest, a Levite, and a detested <laughs> Samaritan. <laughs> two of them couldn't walk by fast enough. One of them stood out and then he stopped to help. But why did he stop to help? The story, as Jesus told us, it doesn't leave it to our imaginations, which is great. Jesus said it was deep sympathy that drove the heart of the Samaritan to help. Some translations call it pity or compassion. He was moved deep in his heart. Empathy isn't easy to cultivate. There's a lot in our culture, and especially in the workplace, that makes this really difficult. Empathy is one of those virtues that never shows up in a performance review. It's, it's never tied to a raise or a promotion. It's just not a core American workplace value. Uh, plus, there are some factors that oppose it. Let me give you a couple enemies to empathy. Number one is that I've been burned by people and lost my empathy for others. You know, one of the most common uh, effects for someone who's been burned is the loss of feeling in the scarred area. And the same thing happens to us relationally. Relational burns can deaden our sense of emotional touch and our empathetic feeling toward others. And for burn victims, skin care is critical to their recovery. They use salves and antibiotics to restore the skin to good health and all that. Empathy requires that we work to stay sensitive to human touch as well. And then empathy enemy number two is that I, you ready? I'm a prejudiced bigot. 
You ever felt looked down upon? We've come a long way in this area, but man, we've got a long way to go. Not just in our society, but in the American church. Got a long way to go. There's so many areas where prejudgments and preferences enter into our everyday interactions. In Jesus' story, it's interesting, two religious professionals walked by a wounded, dying neighbor. They went so far as to walk, cross to walk on the other side so as to eliminate any possible contact. Listen. Our religious standard and our religious expectations and our religious busyness often tramples right over human need. We can find ways to avoid serving even in the name of religion. That's all I'll say about that. Third element is acting, acting like an everyday Samaritan. We already know that one traveler stopped and helped, and the Samaritan saw the man in need, and he felt his pain, and he stopped to help the injured man. What did it take for for him to put feet to his feelings, or more to the point, how can I practically serve others as I go through my workday? That's really the question here. Because sentiments mean nothing without deeds that do something about it. Remember James in his epistle, and he said, faith without works is dead. He said, if you see someone cold and hungry and only say to them, be warmed and filled and do nothing, you are fooling yourself. I love how the message says it. It says, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I love that. Service that's driven out of empathy is at the heart of the Christian experience. So service in the workplace takes initiative, first of all. It takes initiative. I love initiative. I love it when people jump in and they get it all wrong and they make a mess of things. But I, don't, I just love initiative. I love bias to action. I love that. And the Samaritan took a relational chance. He knew he was probably hated by the Jewish victim in the road, but he took the risk anyway. And he stopped and he reached out his hand, not knowing what the response was going to be. He took initiative. Service in the workplace takes adjustment. The Samaritan was obviously going somewhere. He wasn't just taking a stroll out on this road. He apparently was on a schedule because he couldn't wait because otherwise he would have had someone travel with him, but he couldn't have anybody travel with him because he, he needed to go and no one was available. So just by the fact that he's traveling alone, we knew he had somewhere he needed to be. And I doubt that his schedule called for you know, roaming around Jericho looking for assault victims to help. He probably missed his appointment. That's how serving is. Sometimes it means accepting inconvenience. And then service in the workplace means it takes sacrifice. It takes initiative, it takes adjustment, it takes sacrifice. The Samaritan gave his time, he gave his money, he gave his compassion, got his hands dirty, literally. He even instructed the innkeeper to keep tab of the cost while the injured man recuperated and he would take care of the debt. And we know this, that action always meets resistance. Doing the right thing always has a, a mental enemy. It's inertia it takes several forms. First would be that I'm too set in my ways and routine. That's the first resistance we're going to encounter. Another way to say this is that I'm stubborn and inflexible. You know, and routines can be a good thing. Uh, they can also blind our perspective. Uh, some of you have been comfortable in your little circle of friends. Uh, you've become so comfortable there. That's all you see. You've become ingrown and accepting to outsiders, and you'll, you'll meet very few needs. I'm just going to tell you that. You'll do very little service if you never leave your comfort zone. Sometimes routines need a wake-up call 
every once in a while, or they'll lead us away from people. They'll lead us away in deadness to the needs of people. Obstacle number two is that I'm afraid to get involved. I'm afraid. Sometimes we make, uh, we miss opportunities because we make them out to be more complex in our minds than they really are. And paranoia makes every person a serial killer. I can't help them because what if they attack me? Or every employee with a personal problem is not a lawsuit waiting to happen. Every coworker isn't that is in need, isn't a leech trying to suck the life out of you. The Samaritan accepted full liability to care for his neighbor. He didn't overthink the situation. He didn't suddenly feel obliged to travel the road day and night looking for mugged and wounded victims to rescue. He didn't quit his job and become a full-time one-man mobile hospital. He saw the situation for what it was. He saw someone hurt. He felt compassion. He responded on the spot with the resources that he could give. Then there's obstacle number three, that I am relationally lazy. I'm sorry to beat around the bush today, I know, but um, I'm relationally lazy. A lot of us are way too passive in our relationships. We sit around because we think it's another person's job to initiate something. We never take the first step toward people. Maybe not, maybe even after someone else takes the first step, we won't take the second or third. And I, and I think that stop, no, I know that stopping to serve is incompatible with relational laziness. It, it's always easier to cross to the other side of the street and pretend it's not there. But I'm telling you, you will never truly live if you don't connect with the reality of your fellow human being. An initiative means asking, how are things at home? It means calling the person who was laid off six months ago and see how the job search is going, see if there's anything you can do for them. It means introducing yourself to someone that you see regularly but whom you've never actually met. How many of you, um, this is going to be a stretch, but how many of you have ever heard of Michael Phelps? Yeah, yeah. No, really, how many of you have ever heard of Michael Phelps? So a few of you have not heard of Michael Phelps. Just interesting. I don't know. Wow. I just admire your disconnectedness. That's amazing. Um, Michael Phelps, um, uh, he he was in the 2004 Olympics. So that's maybe why it's not fresh for you. No, he was. He was in the 2004 Olympics in Athens. He was 19 years old. He entered the Athens Games uh, chasing Mark Spitz's record of seven medals. That's what he was after. He was swimming the 100-meter butterfly, and his best competition was from his teammate, Ian Crocker. How many of you have ever heard of Ian Crocker? How many of you know? How many of you have heard of him? How many of you know where he's from? Yeah, he's from Maine. He's from Portland, Maine. Did you know that? Now you learn something new. You don't care. Somehow, you're like, dude, this guy's swimming in a pool. Somehow... I can't get over how many hours I spent this month watching guys, or last month, watching guys swim back and forth in a pool. I just can't get over that. I, I haven't recovered yet. Anyway, somehow in the last stroke in this 100-meter 100 uh, butterfly, uh, Phelps surged one one-hundredth of a second and touched the wall for another gold medal. Immediately after the butterfly results, Phelps and Crocker sat down for a TV interview, and they both talked team and about how genuinely happy uh, they were for each other, and these two unpretentious athletes shared the limelight. Within the hour, an announcement was, was made that shocked the media. Phelps was stepping aside to let Crocker swim the upcoming 400-meter relay. You may not you may have forgotten this story. Phelps said Crocker was better at this particular race than he was. He wanted the team to have his best chance to win. And even though he had every right to swim the final because he'd already swam swam the uh, preliminaries, he decided to give Crocker a chance to earn his own gold medal. And when the buzzer sounded and the relay began, Phelps is in the stands cheering on Crocker 
as the U.S. team won. I got a picture of them with their, they each have their medals. Phelps' choice to step aside made headlines precisely because such a thing is so rare. The media wouldn't let it go. They thought there had to be more to it. Because when we step aside and away from our own agenda and away from serving our own interests and take an interest in the concerns and opportunities of others, we've stumbled into great influence. Sir, this is a new, this is a, have you ever made the connection between serving and influence? Serving has an effect on people that begs a response. And when we get beyond ourselves and learn to serve in the workplace, we'll find that our influence begins to expand. And our employees and our employers and our coworkers and our customers can't help but be drawn in by a lifestyle of serving. That's irresistible influence in serving like that. And can you imagine? If the people of faith community, if, if we just made a landmark kind of decision that from this point on we're going to enter every venue of our lives, our friendships, our church life, our community life, our family life, our workplace, with our eyes open, in tune with the needs around us, walking towards those who are hurting instead of crossing to the other side of the street, and responding out of empathy with our compassion and our attention and our time and our resources. Can you imagine what kind of influence we could have in our community? Not so that we can get some attention, but for the cause of Christ. Influence like that is irresistible. This is what Martin Luther meant when he said, it's the calling of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. Thanks for listening. Listen to this song. And actually, you know what? This is a song we play. You can sing along if you want to. Christians by our love, by our love, yes, they'll
Christians by our love.